Greetings, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Just Dumb Enough podcast. My guest today is Barry Fury, a man who has been involved in public safety since 1970, only two years after the 911 system was established as we know it today. This is where I had to do some homework because 911 is specifically the number we call in the United States for emergency services, but it is not the same worldwide, and the audience of this show is currently well over 60 countries, so I wanted to make sure everyone had a grasp on the topic. I just learned that 911 is also used in Canada. The European emergency number, which is the most widely used in the world, is 112 and includes places outside of Europe, such as India. And the other most common number in the world is actually 119 and is used in most Asian countries, such as Japan, Korea, and China. Anyway, Barry has worked as a fire department officer in two states, a 911 dispatch director in four states, is a contributing editor of the very famous Firehouse magazine, and wrote a book on managing a dispatch center. I'm doing my best to keep this intro short, so stay tuned after the interview for more behind-the-scenes show information. Now then, let's find out who you're calling when you call 911. Welcome to the show, Barry Fury. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Why don't you introduce yourself and kind of what you do for the audience? Uh, my name is Barry Fury. Uh, I have been involved in public safety in one form or another since 1970. Uh, served as a fire officer in uh, three states. Served as a 911 director in four uh, and uh, since my retirement a few years back, I have uh, provided consulting services in those areas. Just never ready to retire, right? No, never, never, never ready to retire. There's uh, always something changing in this industry and, and always something for me to learn. Absolutely. And you work in an especially volatile industry. That's, that's true, although it's certainly uh, an industry that uh, is uh, never obsolete. Uh, you, know, I, you know, a lot of us say in the industry, you know, as long as people keep doing foolish things, uh, we've got a job. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of our business is, is built around uh, misfortune and tragedy. Yeah, it really is, unfortunately. But, you know, there's always the men and women who do it, and that's especially appreciated. So how has just the technology evolved since, you know, you started in the industry? That's, that's a great question. Uh, and I want folks to think back to the year 1968 for those people who are actually alive, who are your podcast listeners who were, were uh, born in 1968. Uh, and because I mentioned that date because that's when 911, as we know it today, largely uh, was founded. Uh, the telephones at that time uh, were certainly not mobile. They were connected to a wall. And as a matter of fact, back in 1968, 
you didn't even have telephone jacks. Your your phones were actually hardwired. The telephone company sent somebody out to mount your phone, screw it onto the wall, and that was that. Uh, in fact, many of them didn't even have touchstones as we know it now. The rotary dial phone was a uh, you know a big thing back in 1968. Still state-of-the-art technology, and you can just take a look around and see how things have changed in our own homes since that time. Yeah, absolutely. And when you give it, you know, 50 years of uh, population density as well, you know, even your large towns weren't as packed as they are now. And your rural towns were certainly more so than they are today. That's correct. And, and the, the one thing is that it has just exponentially uh, raised the number of 911 calls because uh, back in the day, because your phone was fixed in, in place, you only called 911 from typically your house or your business. We knew where you were at because the phone company had records of where they hardwired that phone in and it wasn't going anywhere. Uh, and so we got that information whenever you dialed 911. Fast forward to, let's say, the mid-1980s, because that's when cell phones started to work their way into our society. You no longer called 911 just from your uh, house or your business. You called 911 from wherever you were uh, because the phone was mobile. Uh, Unfortunately, the technology at that time, and in fact, still to this day to some degree, did not tell us where a mobile phone was or is, and that's created some problems. But past that point, it has greatly magnified the number of 911 calls because now even a very minor traffic accident in a very visible location generates dozens of 911 calls. Uh, annually, it's estimated there are about 240 million 911 calls made in the United States. And uh, according to statistics, about 80% of those are made from cell phones. So uh, that kind of shows you what some of the driving factors uh, is in terms of, or driving factors are, I should say, in, in terms of our business. Well, and that's an interesting number to look at too. When you say, you know, 240 million ish, we'll just call it for a round number. There's something like 340 million ish people in the U S so that says, you know, two thirds plus of people are going to make a 911 call unless someone's doing, you know, more than their share of dialing the phone. Yeah, and, and and that that's correct. I mean, if if you take you take a look at the population and you weed out children who are too young to call or people who are in situations where they weren't, uh, you know that that pretty much does round it out. You did mention, you know, unless somebody's making uh, more of the calls, um, we do have issues in nine one one, which we uh, I guess uncharitably call frequent flyers, uh, just like the airplane uh, travelers who basically misuse the system. I, I can't put it any any more straight than that. Now, some of them, uh, unfortunately, are just lonely people who have nobody else to talk to, and they know if they dial 911, somebody's going to answer. Uh, to the other extreme, you've got people who call up 
curse, swear, make threats, uh, report um, things that don't exist. And, and, and to that end, uh, 911 is sort of the barometer for the, uh, not to editorialize, but the barometer for the lack of mental health care uh, in our country. There are a lot of folks out there who probably really do need help. And we just see that a lot because we are free and we are available to everybody at a moment's notice. Well, and I've got to imagine that has only increased in the last couple of years as people become more isolated and their their mental health deteriorates even more. You know, they're all the more likely to, to reach out for either one reason or another. Yeah, and, and, and that's a very interesting phenomenon, the impact of, of uh COVID on 911 uh, to one degree uh, and, you know, un- unemployment as well. I mean, to one degree, I've seen in the past where unemployment was high, an increase in emergency medical runs or calls for ambulances because uh, people had lost um, health care. Uh, when they lost their jobs and were able to go to a hospital and get, get seen without a lot of uh, questioning. But the, 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 the second part in terms of COVID, one of the things that it has done is to significantly impact an already uh, burgeoning shortage of 911 uh, telecommunicators across the country. Yeah. And that's, I wanted to take a step back to ask this question, but, you know, with people abusing the 911 system in either way out of, you know, loneliness or out of some kind of an aggression, isn't that illegal? Yes, it's, it's illegal in, in, in most places, but like many things that are illegal, it's selectively enforced for the people who call just wanting a friend, uh, you, you know, an awful lot of times that's tolerated or work is done to try to get those people appointed in the right direction to get the kind of help that they're, they're seeking. In the other degree, I have seen um, people prosecuted for repeatedly calling 911 without due cause. But again, uh, the penalty for that differs from state to state, and in most cases, it is not a significant penalty. So many jurisdictions just give up on prosecution because at, at the end of the day, it's probably not worth their time. Yeah, and I can see, you know, the lonelier of us, you know, in society like, okay, you know, we're not going to look to prosecute this because it is a mental health problem. And unfortunately, it sounds, you know, more difficult to some degree to enforce it on the uh, the more malicious uses. But I remember this term, and I couldn't remember where I heard it for the first time, swatting, which was, you know, calling the, the 911 system, as I understand it, to divert police resources in one direction or another. Yeah, and that, again, is a 21st century phenomenon. And uh, the interesting thing is that there are not really good statistics on how widespread it is because most 911 centers, when when they take a call, they categorize it as whatever 
uh, it was reported as, and, and uh, typically those things are reported as home invasions or hostage situations or something violent enough that it would require the dispatch of a SWAT team. And that's where the swatting term comes from. Many of the calls involving swatting uh, are traced back to online gaming. And that's just not pointing an errant finger in that uh, people within the community are able to find out information about others in the community and use that to falsely report an incident at their house. And typically, having listened to, to several of those calls myself, are pretty darn convincing uh, about what's going on. Unfortunately, uh, convincing to the point that I'm, I am aware of at least one case where there was a fatality involved, where the victim of swatting was shot by the responding uh, police department and killed. Yeah, it sounds extremely dangerous because, you know, if you say a hostage situation or, you know, some extreme version of violence, like in a lot of times the SWAT team needs to show up and make an immediate approach. There is no waiting time. And, you know, if you're someone especially not expecting that to happen in your own house, I could imagine that being very jarring and then unfortunately shocking enough that it could go in any number of directions. Yeah, and I think the important thing to remember is that uh, we ask a lot of questions when somebody calls 911, and they are not just useless questions, although when you are on the other end of the phone wanting to get help, you, you will think they are, but they're designed to determine what the appropriate response, if any, is to your concern. But we are not in a position to say that we're not going to send anybody. I mean, we will take basically at face value what you say, and we will send resources based upon the questions that you answer. And if you are telling us that you are, you know, somebody is holding a gun to your head in your living room, uh, we're not going to question that. We are going to send whatever amount of resources are, required for that type of call yeah um and with the evolving technology i imagine it gets both you know easier at some levels to determine where someone is if you can you know find the direct signals from towers or however it is that you're located over the phone and at the same time also easier to kind of conceal your identity when making a call yeah, and, and, and I think they are both true to, a, to an extent. The, the, the one thing is that um, we are still working through all the wrinkles of adding digital devices to what is an analog system. Right now, there is a uh, undertaking that's known as NextGen 911 or NG911 that is working on bringing in new features to the users, as well as completely rebuilding from the ground up the 911 uh, system. Any of the changes we've made since 1968 to today have basically been band-aids and bailing wire changes. We have crazy glued 
digital applications onto analog networks. Uh, mobile telephones, cell telephones, big, big game changer uh, for the industry, industry. And we're still working on getting improved location technology. Strangely enough, uh, people said, oh, if, if Domino's uh, Pizza can find us, why can't 911? They actually use a different and sometimes better way of, of, of finding you. But even as we refine the location of cell phones, one of the issues we deal with now is elevation. If we can put you at a particular address, that's fine if you're out in the country. But if you're in downtown in a 10 or 12 or 20 story building, um, that changes our, our ability to find you quite drastically. Yeah, especially if your your call is, you know, help, help, I need help, and then click, they they hang up. Like, okay, now we have to do a sweep of this 20-story building and hope we can figure out who exactly it is that called. And, and from a response, response uh, perspective, that can be problematic. And there have been, unfortunately, um, a number of cases where first responders have gone and canvassed a a neighborhood or an, or an apartment and not found anybody. And then hours later or days later, uh, it turns out somebody's found them uh, dead or seriously injured and uh, they were just missed during the first sweep. Yeah. We're in that weird space of technology where there is not enough to perfectly find people. <laughs> and it seems like maybe there could potentially be more buy-in uh, from countries companies that are developing, you know, mobile technology to kind of help out their 911 system because it seems like they haven't necessarily done that. Well, it's very, very interesting uh, observation. One of the things that we have dealt with in 911 is that we have literally been behind the curve of public technology. For, for, for decades. In, in fact, we typically find ourselves scrambling to catch up with what the, the latest electronic gadget is. You know, I, I'll go back to cell phones uh, again. Uh, when, when they first came out, the whole issue of even be able, being able to call 911, let alone people know where you're at, was problematic. Then we took a step forward where folks uh, migrated to voice over internet protocol uh, telephones, created the same problem. In fact, some of the VOIP carriers required that citizens enter their own 911 data in their records. Many people did that and forgot to change it when they moved. And, and so well, calling from California, it looked like they were in an apartment in, in New York City. So, so you know, that happened. The most recent, I, I guess I would say, would uh, would be text to 911, which is a, is a great benefit, but that's only coming to the party now, and it's not nationwide yet, but that is driven both by people in the hearing impaired community and also by the public expectation, hey, wait a minute, I can text and I can send a streaming video or I can send the JPEG to uh, my friend. Why can't I do that to 911? So uh, again, we're, 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 we're catching up. So yeah, un unfortunately, 
technology typically gets in the hands of consumers for five years before we know even how to deal with it. Yeah. And there's one you said in there that I guess does catch my eye, which is uh, texting 911. Um, I know I've heard years ago, whenever this was, about the Virginia Tech shooting that they had a lot of people who were texting 911. How does that work? Well, basically, uh, your jurisdiction has to be set up uh, to do that again. So it's a technology change in the system and inside the 911 center. But basically, um, you would send a text message to 911 just as you would any other uh, telephone number that could accept text messages. And on our end, we are going to be asking you questions uh, back and forth, just like we were talking to you. The caveats there again are, uh, number one, it's always said, call 911 and, and talk if you can, text if, 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 if you must. So first of all, a voice call is always preferable because of the limitations of texting. You, there, there's no standard syntax. You can't interrupt a caller in the middle of a sentence to try to figure out what they're saying. There's some time lags. Uh, strangely enough, um, and again, managing a center here uh, prior to my retirement in, in, in Raleigh and with my friend who manages the center next door in Durham, we're in a high-tech university environment. We've got the University of North Carolina. We've got Duke University. We've got several other major schools right here in what's known as, as the Triangle. We found very, very little usage of text to 911, and that's the trend that we see nationwide. It's good to have there, but it's largely at this point thought of as a backup feature. And again, I would you know, caution your audience to, if they're wanting to text 911, to check with their local authorities to see if it's even in place in their uh, area, because again, it is not universal. Yeah, as you said, it, it's new technology. And obviously it seems very advantageous to call, even if you can't necessarily say all that much, because, you know, an operator can at least hear maybe what's happening or the longer you stay on the line, the easier they can direct people to you. Any number of things where a text is like, I send a text to 911 that says help. And then they have to kind of either write one back or the system has to write one back that says what's happening. And then I have to write back, like how many times do you, do you have to type before it just becomes a matter of you could get this information in 10 to 20 seconds if I was just on the phone? Yeah, and, and, and that's it. I mean, it, it takes longer. You can't hear background noises. You can't hear uh, inflection in somebody's uh, voice. And the other parts of, and this is sort of the first go-round of what I termed next-gen 911. The other parts are streaming video and um, sending JPEGs or some other type of, of uh, you know, picture to 911. And even that has caused some discussion in the industry about, okay, what do you do when the picture or the video doesn't agree with what the caller is telling you when they're sending you that? Uh, what if the picture or the video looks to be false, uh, you know, how do, how do you handle that? 
Uh, so it's um, it's generated a um, you know a, a great deal of discussion within the industry. I will share uh, an anecdote about um, you know what do you do if, if a picture looks false? Uh, I believe it was somewhere in Missouri. The nine one one center received a, uh, a picture of a um, wild animal, I believe it was a baboon, uh, sent in with a report that this animal was running loose in one of the local subdivisions. Well, they um, sent resources out there, police, animal control. They locked down schools in the area because, hey, there's this wild animal loose. We don't want the little kids out on the playground on, on recess. And they came to find out that basically the picture was something out of National Geographic that was sent by a bored kid who was homesick that day. Uh, but but again, you know, this kind of goes back to swatting. Uh, you can't just necessarily judge a book by a cover. So next generation 911 um, helps, but there are certainly new rules, regulations, and ways to handle the calls that are working themselves into our industry. Yeah, the uh, the baboon kind of reminds me of a story I just heard pretty recently, where there was like a loose a liger, a tiger or a lion uh, in Texas, where people are like, "Well, that's not real," and they're like, "No, it's outside my apartment right now." <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I've seen a uh, situation in Canada where people were calling nine one one that there were elephants walking down their street and. And indeed, there were elephants walking down their street. They had escaped from a, uh, a, a zoo that was in town uh, at, at the time. So, yeah, one of the things you, uh, you know, learn at 911 and in public safety in general is to never say never. Sometimes the craziest story somebody tells you turns out to be true. I, I talked about frequent flyers uh, to you before and uh, they kind of tie in with my crazy story thought uh we had one sweet lady who would always call with some imaginary problem uh, and the, the problems were uh, as wild as, as stephen king's imagination uh, one time she called and said that there was a martian on her front porch um, and so our personnel dutifully sent a deputy out there just to check on her welfare, really. The deputy got out there and found a teenager who had been huffing fluorescent green paint staggering around on this woman's uh, front porch. Now, the fluorescent green paint and uh, combined with huffing had put this day glow green halo around this person's face. And her best way to describe it to, to us was, Hey, so it's a little green man. It must be a Martian. She, she omitted all these other parts of the description other than it's a Martian. So, uh, again, like I said, our, our job is to send people out and let the first responders sort it out. Uh, because, like I said, sometimes the wildest stories turn out to be the truest. Yeah. And that's an interesting balance in kind of uh, the boy who cried wolf story. Where it's like, yeah, we've received several calls from this person in the past where it's really, you know, whatever kind of issue it may be. Now they have a, a very different issue. And is this like they've evolved a new aspect to their call or is there something genuinely different going on here? Uh, and the, the boy who cried wolf 
has been the undoing of many uh, telecommunicators over the years and is the impetus behind a number of 911 horror stories. Uh, I believe it was Detroit, Michigan years ago. Uh, a child called on a busy night uh, saying that his mother was sick or something to that nature. And the call taker who took the call didn't send any resources. Um, she wrote it off as just another kid playing with the telephone because that can be, uh, you know, back in the old days, uh, kids pulled the fire alarm box for, for thrill. And then that's translated now to a call 911. Uh, the, the bottom line is that uh, child called back and apparently somebody answered hour or two later sent resources out there the mother was dead do i understand why dispatcher did what she did i can haven't been in the industry as long as i am i can grasp the rationale she's probably dealt with dozens of these calls uh has got a lot of other real emergencies going on that she's trying to manage and reached a frustration level where her experience said to her ah this is nothing uh, you know, get, I'm not going to send anything. Uh, can they justify it? No, no, I, I can't. So then there's a big difference between understanding and justifying. Uh, I can remember when I first started dispatching because I, I dispatched for many years before I worked my way up to an executive director in, in different agencies. Um, I can remember taking a, a phone call in the middle of the night from sounded like a 10, 11 year old boy giving me in which sounded like a Hollywood or a novel description of the house down the street being on fire. Oh yeah. And he is calm, calm as we are talking right now. Oh, there's flames coming out of the windows and I see a lot of smoke and it's like three o'clock in the morning. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, where are your parents? You know, where, where, where are your parents? Okay. So hang up. Get ready to dispatch as I'm dispatching. I pick up the phone again, and there is a grown woman on there screaming her head off, giving me the same, 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 same description. So, you know, sometimes you can't even talk or make your judgment based upon the, the caller's demeanor. To some people, a minor emergency it sounds like it's armageddon when, when when they're calling on the phone and to others that may have just witnessed something horrific and they're talking like you'd read a friend you hadn't seen in a while hey you know how how are you what what's going on so it's a you know it's a you, you see a variety of emotions and, and a variety of callers yeah and how do you find that balance between you know, you can't necessarily, I'm sure there's a lot of people who would say, oh, you can just send resources to every call, even if it is a child playing on the phone, because there's a potential that you have, you know, three other very serious things taking up resources on the line currently, you know, like that's not unheard of because some people may think like, oh, I'm sure you always have an infinite amount of resources. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, and in fact, we don't even have an infinite amount of resources inside the 911 center. Uh, COVID, well, first of all, there has been a shortage of telecommunicators that's going on for decades. Uh, 
people see the visible workforce shortage when they go out to get something to eat and find out their favorite restaurants closed or maybe only the drive, you know, the driving part is open. Uh, 911 has been short for years. And now with COVID, uh, the National Emergency Number Association, or NINA, which is a, a, a trade group for uh, public safety communications professionals, estimate that the average 911 center in the country is working now at 30% below their authorized staff, and that in many urban areas, uh, it can be uh, 50%. Uh, I mentioned the Durham, my neighboring county here. I know it last year, at a point, they were 47% below staff and had to actually send some of their 911 calls to Raleigh to be answered. Uh, things have gotten so tight. But, you know, resources get in the center, outside of the, the center, uh, the, the same thing. There are a limited amount of resources. And some of the questions that some centers routinely ask now uh, deal with trying to manage the re those resources. And, and that's been one of the biggest changes from when I entered the industry until now is that um, we used to pretty much send everything because we had resources to do it. And the call volume was not what it is right now. Uh, now, for example, and we still send people, but we are now prioritizing calls. Uh, Typically, except not so much for the fire department because a fire is a fire and we will find out the severity of the fire and then dispatch accordingly. But for law enforcement, there is a priority in terms of what calls get the most immediate response. And some communities have gone over to uh, telephone or actually online reporting where if you have got a, if you're reporting a crime, in which nobody's been injured, there are no identifiable subjects, and typically it's probably property damage or theft. You can make that report either on the telephone or actually online. And you know, many people make those types of reports solely to satisfy the insurance company. They're, they're not really thinking that they're going to get anything back that's been damaged or stolen, but they want to report. And, and so those changes have come about. But uh, again, you know, I caution when I say, or underline when I say that some 911 centers, uh, because there's a, there's a saying that 911, one nation, one number. Uh, it's true. And I put a caveat on that. And that is one nation, one number legislated 50 different ways because each state has their own rules of how to do pretty much everything in life, including 911. And then managed about 5,500 different ways because there are about that number of 911 or dispatch centers in, in, in the country. And, and so people in one area, procedures may be completely different than in another. And that's why I say it's really kind of important to know what things are in your local community. Yeah. And from your opinion, at least, and your experience that can speak to this, do you see more of a benefit for there being smaller, more integrated dispatch facilities like to a town 
or does it get better if you have something at like the county level? Okay, this this is my opinion, and uh, you know, this is uh, <sighs> a um, it's it, it's interesting that uh, cooperation and consolidation are next to each other in the dictionary, but miles apart in 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 the real world. For me, uh, I have always been a proponent of and a manager of larger consolidated centers. Uh, I think they, they work better. They are economically more feasible because no matter what size of 911 center you operate, you have to have at least some basic equipment. Uh, there are not only the phone equipment, but computer equipment, radio equipment, hardened facility, backup generators. And so all of that stuff is typically cheaper through economy of scale. And that's the business in, in general, not just 911. The other thing is with the shortage of telecommunicators, it's the most efficient way to use your personnel. When you have several small centers in an area who are competing with each other and recruiting and, you know, everybody is short, you can put together a larger team and those vacancies are not quite as, as critical. I would add, the, in my experience, the final caveat is that in your consolidated centers, and that's where you do fire police and EMS all together. Information between the services is often accidentally shared simply through the overhearing of a conversation. Uh, I, I can tell you numerous times when somebody on the phone over here overhears somebody on the radio somewhere else talking to a unit from a different service about a call. Hey, wait a minute. I've got somebody on the phone right now and they tell me the person's going south. And when you don't have agencies in the same center working together, that doesn't happen. Uh, if you go back to 9-11, which is also sort of one of the watershed moments that changed our industry, uh, was a great deal of concern about information sharing and communications in New York City because the police and fire had different facilities. And, and so the potential for many important, and maybe at the time seemingly unimportant, conversations to be missed. So there's a certain osmosis that occurs in your consolidated centers that you don't say. Now, if you've got a real small community and you're, and you're happy with your, your operation, you know, so, 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 so be it. I'm certainly not knocking them, but from my experience and my preference, consolidated centers are the way to go. It's good to know. And I'd be remiss if I didn't ask what, you know, what does it take if someone is listening and they want to become, you know, a 911 operator? Okay. Uh, again, one of the, one of the things I would suggest is to uh, find out what your local requirements are, because again, there is not a nationwide uh, standard. Uh, even where there are more than one 911 centers in the same county, but both of those centers may have different uh, requirements. But uh, 
typically, um, you have to be free of convictions. And in fact, some places, the uh, 911 dispatcher requirements are even more strict than police officers. Uh, you have to be free of convictions, or at least in most cases, uh, free of felonies or what would be considered to be public moral crimes. Uh, you have to be certain age, you have to have uh, visual and hearing acuity, although again, um, 911 centers like any employee are, uh, are subject to the American with Disabilities Act. So there, there can be uh, allowances made and compensations made. Uh, and then you, you have to pass the test. And again, that test is different depending upon where you are at. Um, pass a background test, test you will pass a background check. Uh, you will have reference checked. Some places do polygraph and fiscal uh, check. So it can be a pretty exhaustive process. Uh, but, and then there are also formalized tests that are given. Uh, one of my recommendations for people who are interested in, you know, getting a job in the industry or maybe even, uh, you know, moving elsewhere to get a job. First of all, check your local agency's websites and see what information's there. Or go to sites like governmentjobs.com where they have a nationwide listing and, and, and search for 911 or telecommunicator or dispatcher and, and, and see what's in an area that you're interested in. Uh, and, and certainly, uh, as I said, as short as we are in the industry right now, uh, people will be glad to, to have you. Yeah, absolutely. So, I, you know, I want to be able to make sure people know, hey, there's a shortage and, you know, you don't have to have, it doesn't sound like at least for all of them, you don't have to come into this with a degree. You know, you can just come into this and they will train you to do the job. That, that's correct. There are, there are some agencies who still may require an associate or give you a bonus for some education, but most of them agencies that I am aware of, high school uh, or GED, uh, and you are uh, typically paid to train. Uh, the agencies that I have run uh, use uh, multi-week, in fact, multi-month academies where it is a classroom setting where you're taught all the procedures, you are obtaining national certifications that are in many cases transferable to other agencies. And then you are uh, put out uh, on the floor under the supervision of uh, an experienced trainer. So for the first year, um, you are pretty much either in training or being monitored. Uh, because, because honestly, in, in larger facilities, in a small town, this may not may not apply. In a larger facility, it's you're you're probably under somebody's wing or in class for a year, and you're probably still wondering what you got yourself into for the year year after after that. So it's it definitely it, it's a, it's amazing. I've, I've listened to the. Uh, podcast uh, with uh, you and your wife, and there was a discussion of, uh, you know, learning curve for uh, employment and, and jobs on there. And, and yeah, uh, there is there is a learning curve here, but I would not suggest that that learning curve uh, puts you off. Years ago, 
many people were recruited from within public safety families. Uh, you know, my grandfather was a police officer. My father was a firefighter. Uh, I come from that culture. However, that has kind of faded uh, over the years. And there's still quite a, quite a few of us that, that, that come from that environment. But when I was recruiting, uh, I would always look for people who come from service industries. You know, if you've got a good server in a restaurant who can remember a, a table of six and is a, uh, who ordered what and is attentive to refill on the glasses and things like that, that work ethic, that public contact, to me, is is worth a million dollars. And we've been very successful in recruiting from that sector, especially when you consider that many people in those positions have very few benefits and largely depend on gratuities uh, to make a halfway decent living. Not, not that you're going to get rich in this profession. Let me dissuade anybody from saying, I'm going to go there and get rich. But you know that in most cases, you've got benefits and a regular paycheck coming in that's not dependent on you know tips. Yeah. And what you said there was really interesting because I hadn't thought about it. But if you are you know a server and you've been doing that job for a while, like you've kind of got the memory, the communication, working between, you know, different entities, be the front and the back of the house or whatever uh, they might refer to it as. Like you actually have developed a fair amount of the same skills that might help you in training for something like this. If you want to just, you know, get away from what you're doing and, and switch to something that maybe you enjoy more or you feel more fulfilled at. Yeah. And I, you, you hit the key word, the key words fulfilled. Um, it's a, um, it's oftentimes a thankless job. Uh, you can't really rely on anybody else for your pleasure or not that you should in any, any job, but you know, the bottom line is you can go home some days wondering if you completed all the tasks you're supposed to be have completed, but you've done uh, a good job at the ones you've done. I mean, we used to recognize all the people in our center who either successfully delivered a baby over the telephone in a given year or had a um, CPR save in, in, a, in a given year. And, you know, in, in our community, there were dozens in, in, in each category on, on, on a typical year. And in, in fact, there was a, a, a countywide ceremony that involved all the first responders and all the 911 personnel and had the uh, cardiac saves actually come to that ceremony and meet the people who were involved in, in the process. So that's, you know, to be able to save somebody's life without getting up out of your chair is, you know, I don't know that you can get that anywhere else. Yeah. And you're pretty directly responsible for a massive increase in their, their likelihood to survive. From my understanding, if you can, you know, you receive the call and the dispatch, and you can lead someone through CPR until, you know, the EMS can get there. Like, that's a pretty major thing to be able to do. And it's very critical. It, it is. And again, unfortunately, this is not, not universal. Uh, 
Um, some states very recently only started to require um, telecommunicators to provide pre-arrival uh, CPR. It's something that um, I've been doing in agencies that, that I managed since the early 90s um, under a protocol called EMD or Emergency Medical Dispatch. And it's a series of, it's a decision tree. It's a series of questions and answers that in our case went past CPR, but dealt basically with uh, checking symptoms on all your calls again to try to you know, determine what level of uh, response was required. And again, those questions have been get modified as, as time goes on. I mean, most recently they were modified because of COVID. Okay, we are sending people into a situation that may be highly contagious. Uh, let's ask a couple of other questions. Again, we just don't pick these questions out of the air. These all come from recognized medical authorities and every community that runs these protocols has a medical director somewhere involved in, in, in the process to validate, hey, yeah, these are the national guidelines and here's how we're going to apply them here. Uh, probably the strangest modification that we ever had to make on the guideline was that uh, with regard to uh, chest pain, uh, we had to stop start, start asking people, had they taken a Viagra? Because prior to that, we would ask if, if, for example, we would ask if you have nitro. Yeah, okay, take one. Well, if you're taking Viagra, you can't take nitro. So again, changes in society, changes in technology, uh, changes in medicine, change, you know, even get to that level of 911 where there has to be a change to deal with those issues. Yeah, I'm sure there's a fair amount of listeners out there that just heard chest pain and Viagra in the same same thought and they're like what's happening here <laughs> um yeah and, and like i said you and it, it, it it's amazing that you get to see the best or we're actually here but soon see uh the best and worst of society uh, and you will find out that even in so-called quote bad neighborhoods there are good people and that in some of your, uh, you know, elegant areas of, of town, uh, not everyone is a, is a sweetheart. You, see, you get to see people helping people and you get to see people not being so helpful. Yeah, I heard a, a quote and I'll say it before I say where it came from, because otherwise it'll lose all credibility. They said, just because they're nice houses doesn't mean nice things are happening in them. And I thought that was a really good quote. And it just happened to come from the uh, Cobra Kai series. <laughs> <laughs> I, I try to work in wax in and wax off, but I don't, we'll go back to the predecessor, but I don't know how, how I can work that in. Uh, no, honestly, um, you know, you, you do see... And you do hear again. You hear, you hear it all. Uh, some of it uh, are just is just extremely funny. 
Uh, there are people who call 911 with questions and problems that you have to just scratch your head. Uh, and then there are others who call 911 who have problems that you are, are not within the realm of public safety, but yet you'll work to try to get those people um, a solution. And, you know, there are people who are going to call and cuss you out and be rude and mean and offensive and racist and every other negative word that you can apply. And yet you still got to get them help too. Uh, and you really just kind of have to, you know, divorce yourself for the moment and say, okay, I'm here to get this person help. And we try to cut to the chase and see what it is. When I first started the job, it was very basic. Uh, we were told, don't get attached, don't have any emotion. Uh, since then, uh, we have softened that uh, a little bit. You know, I, I always told my folks, hey, I want you to have emotion. I want you to have a connection with the caller, but I don't want you to fall apart until after the call's over. And, and there's been a recognition very, very recently that, that telecommunicators or dispatchers, whatever uh, name you apply, suffer PTSD uh, just as first responders do, while you don't uh, right now see what's going on. And again, this is sort of an interesting update with the introduction of streaming video where people in 911 will now also see what's going on. Uh, you do hear what's going on. Uh, you do become part of the scenario. Uh, I know a number of people, uh, me included, have, have taken some very serious calls. Uh, they had people commit suicide while on the, on the phone with them or, you know, describe in, in great detail a grisly murder scene. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's but you have to get the job done no matter how you feel about it. And that, that's the bottom line. Yeah. And I think a lot of people aren't going to realize you know, the potential for PTSD in a career like this, but you know, you're living everybody else's trauma in the moment as much as you might separate yourself or you have a layer of protection by, you know, for the moment being, not being able to see it, like you're still experiencing some level of that day in and day out. Yeah. And if it's a story that's on the web or in the news a good portion of those stories um, somehow were, were, were filtered through 911 or started uh, at 911. And your react, everybody's, everybody's reaction is different. It doesn't make anybody right or wrong. But, uh, you know, there have been surveys about, about what are the hardest calls to manage. Well, obviously, calls, you know, in, involving children. I mean, who doesn't have a soft spot for kids and especially people who are parents and the child involved is the same age as one of their children is extremely difficult. Uh, and, you know, responder down, whether it's an officer shot or a firefighter with, 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 with a mayday, um, you, you get to have 
almost a symbiotic relationship sometimes with people in, in, in the field. And those types of situations are ex- extremely hard to handle. I will not mention the city, uh, but it was a center that I managed. I was in visiting the staff on Christmas Day and a father had uh, picked up his young son from his mother for Christmas Day custody, left her house and jumped off the bridge holding him into the river. Uh, both both died. <laughs> That's the stuff that you know somebody had to hear at at nine one one somewhere. And and uh, if you listen to the tapes of nine eleven. Uh, at the World Trade Center, the calls that came in, um, you know, almost indescribable, uh, the, both the number and the severity. And yet, you know, on the other side, you'll see stories about kids who call 911 looking for help with their homework or they can't find their toys or something that is just completely the other side, or again, somebody giving, being talked through childbirth by a telecommunicator. You, know, you see both sides of the coin. And again, I say see, but I should be saying hear through all these things. You, you physically hear both sides of the good and the bad. Yeah, and as, as humans, we are you know, either gifted or cursed with the ability of a fairly active imagination for most people. So, you know, even though people hear the podcast, at some point you start to visualize something. And if this is your job and you're doing it all the time, you've got to kind of build a mental image to go with what you're hearing, uh, rather to make sense out of it or, you know, just to, to gather information in what's missing. Oh, yeah. And it, it is human nature. And you mentioned what's missing one of the biggest stressors especially in in larger agencies is the lack of closure that many telecommunicators have even on fairly important calls because the call volume is such that once you've done your part you've taken that call you may dispatch units or again in larger cities You've taken the call and you've passed it off to someone else who actually does the dispatching. And as soon as you've done that, the phone's rung again and you've picked it up and it's, you know, another crisis that you, you've got to deal with. And, and you, you don't forget, but you don't have time to worry about what, what happened. And maybe you find out later and maybe you don't, but, you know, and that's, you, you know, and the way calls are, are managed like that, uh, depending upon the configuration, you may take a cradle to grave. You may be completely responsible, but more often than not now, you're taking that call and somebody else is talking to the police, talking to the fire, talking to the ambulance, and you are back on another call with a, with a citizen who needs help. Yeah, and I would say if you've called 911 and you have a level of gratitude you'd like to express, people in this industry probably really want to hear that because you know the telecommunicator only gets to hear from you until you're off the phone and then they hear you know somewhat perhaps of what's going on as you're transported and the same measure like you know an EMS personnel on scene 
only gets to see you from the time they pick you up to the time they drop you off. It's not like there's a great deal of, of communication happening backwards where the hospital's like, Hey, remember these 30 people you took calls for? Here's how all of them turned out. Yeah. Which is, which is why that, uh, yearly ceremony I talked to you about was nice. And, and, and let me start by saying, I don't think anybody in public safety thinks they deserve thanks or expects to deserve thanks. And if they do, they've gotten in the wrong business for the, for the, for the, for the wrong reason. I mean, your, your thanks should really come from helping people. That's what your job is. But yet, no, uh, telecommunicators especially don't hear it a lot. Uh, They don't hear it from their bosses a lot. And some of that has to do with the fact that their bosses don't hear good things from the public a lot. I always try to catch my people doing something good. Because there was, there was always some, some, something out there. Uh, but by and large, when you are a, a supervisor or a director in this industry and, and you get a call from the public, it's almost presupposed that, oh, God, what's, you know, what's wrong now? What, what, what happened? What do I need to deal with? Uh, I will share you one personal case, which had touched me deeply back in the late 1980s, I was instrumental in establishing a countywide 911 system in uh, Illinois. The county had not had the uh, had 911 before that, used 10-digit numbers, and it was Champaign County, Illinois, which is actually where the main campus of the University of Illinois was, so it was important for me to get that system in place because we had students from all over the country who expected it. A few days after we got the system online, I was told I some, some lady would like to speak to you, and my immediate thing was, what went wrong with the new system? Instead, she, she thanked me for starting the system and said that her husband died, which was kind of an odd segue. But as it turns out, uh, she said that her husband had died, but because we had started 911, she knew the number. She, she called for help. She, she could never remember the, the, the old number. She called for help. The ambulance was there within three minutes. She said, I know I did everything and they did everything you know, for him. I just want to thank you for you know, sort of relieving me of this guilt. And I was just like, wow, you know, so there are actually, the point of that is there are actually people out there who, who care, who are thankful. Not all of them pick up the phone, but I would encourage anyone who's had a good experience with 911 to get a hold of their local uh, 911 center or, you know, your local uh news media, and uh, if, if there are you know, editorial columns that allow uh, citizen input to uh, just to take a moment and give that pat on the back, because it, it really means means a lot. And coming up in April um, is National uh, Telecommunicators Week. It is always the second full week of the month where agencies try to recognize uh, their uh Folks, so that's a, it's another good time, especially if you are a, a, a small business or something and want to try to recognize folks in your community. Uh, it's a good time to do it. 
absolutely it is. And I want to give that the, you know, the recognition it deserves and, and make sure people are, you know, heard and respected for doing a really important job. On that same measure, I want to kind of hear about how the information gets passed, you know, to the telecommunicator and then onward from there to whoever it's dispatching. You know, what does that process look like? There are several permutations, but there are two distinct styles of uh, emergency call management, uh, single stage and, and two stage. And the single stage is what I referred to earlier, sort of the cradle to grave uh, method. Uh, and you typically will see that in smaller communities where the person who takes the call is also the person who dispatches the call. So they will get the information and they will send out, they'll get the information from the caller. They will send out the appropriate information um, over radio or pagers or whatever system is used locally. Uh, at some point, there is a means of recording that information. And typically, it is now what's called a CAD system or computer-aided dispatch, which allows them to search their records and validate that the address is a good address and, and determine based upon that address what agencies cover that address and to take down all the particulars and to uh, enter the uh, type of call and, and, and some of the particulars and the system will then recommend, oh, okay, it's a fire department, B, police department, and you send this many vehicles based upon the severity of the call. That's given out, and any communications back and forth are handled by the same person who took the call initially. On a two-stage dispatch, that process is, is segregated. Somebody deals with the caller, takes the call, and enters this information into the CAD system, which is then sent as a record to the dispatcher who gets a an alert that says, okay, hey, wait a minute. It's sort of like the old, date myself, the old AOL. Hey, you've got mail. Well, there'll be a flag or a bing that comes up on this person's system says, hey, we've got a new call. And then they take care of the process of alerting and communicating with the first responders. The one thing that we have to explain to citizens constantly in the two-stage system is that the amount of questions we are asking is not delaying dispatch. Again, because as you're typing, you are sending, once you find out where it is and what it is, you are sending that information off to the person who's doing the dispatching. So once we know what the major problem is and what the address is in a two-stage system, that's already been handed off to the uh, dispatcher. And the other questions have to deal with trying to get additional information that will help the first responders. So those are the, those are the two uh, basic uh, different ways. Again, there are some communities that uh, don't use scripted protocols where uh, the person taking the call would just ask whatever questions the agency may have trained them to call. Uh, and there are still very, very few, but there are still agencies that will write this down by hand, either on a card or, or some type of form, and there's no, uh, no computer involved, but analog maps and cards and other resources, as it was when I, I started in, this, uh, in public safety back in 1970. Yeah. So if I gave you 
the perfect amount of resources, whatever that might be, uh, which of the two systems do you prefer? Oh, two-stage without, with, with, without a doubt. Uh, it is so easy to get bogged down with a serious event in the single-stage system uh, on both sides of the, uh, of the coin. If you are, again, giving CPR instructions over the phone, and we've talked about that earlier as, as being something very beneficial. If you are giving CPR instructions over the phone and you are halfway through those instructions and a police officer who you are also monitoring on the radio says, I've been shot. What do you do? Do you say, uh, sorry, I got just just hold that thought. I'm going to go over here and talk to this officer or tell the officer, you know, hey, you know, uh, just uh, hold it for a minute. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm giving CPR. And that that's the problem. Dispatchers are good multitaskers. But there's a limit to everything, and there's also a discussion that there may not be such a thing as multitasking. It may be the ability of some people to rapidly shift their information from one thing to another rather than do things both at the same time. So, yeah, given the resources, um, you know, I want my people to be able to focus on one thing and do that thing well and to, the, the you know, take their complete attention. Yeah, it certainly seems without spontaneously growing a second head, I wouldn't know how to handle that kind of a, a split situation where both things are immediate, life-threatening, and critical. Yeah, and, it, it, you know, and situations can even occur when you have segregated call-taking and dispatching if multiple emergencies occur at the, at, at the same time. Um, but that is a little easier, a little easier to, to, to manage because you, you've got a, a pretty good sense of priorities between those, those two emergencies. And, and, and so, so typically there are not two major ones that happen together. Yeah, you sure hope not, but uh, <laughs> it's got to happen somewhere at some time. Well, you know, it's a, I think a lot of people have heard of Murphy's Law, which is, you know, if it's a, going to happen it'll it'll happen at the worst time and i think if you work in dispatch you think that uh, murphy is an optimist because there's so many other codicils that go along with that it's not only going to be at the at the worst time it's it's going to be when your resources are uh, are nil when you've got a you know another another emergency going on so it's a yeah it can you know we never say it it can't get worse because, and we also never use the Q word, the quiet word inside this, in, inside the center. That's a, that is the uh, biggest jinx that you can say to anyone inside the nine one one center to, to say, "Have a quiet night," or ask them, "Hey, is it quiet?" Or say, "Gee, it really is quiet." Because uh, superstition or not, it seems to be that uh, you know it won't take long now because you jinxed yourself. Yeah. Absolutely. Is there any concern in a multi-stage system of any information being lost, you know, as it changes hands multiple times? Oh, there's there's always that concern. Uh, And one 
of the safeguards against that is, again, the use of the computer-aided dispatch system that basically uh, gives you an audit trail of the transfer of, of, of information. Uh, yeah. Does that mean that it's perfect? No, by, 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 by no means. Uh, you know, someone may have not um, entered all the information. Somebody might have, you know, entered the wrong information. Uh, I think the, the biggest concern in the industry we have right now, more than the, uh, you know, transfer of information from one person to another, is the potential for mistakes due to workload. Uh, nobody, and, and I mean absolutely nobody of those 5,000 some odd 911 centers I discussed has enough people to handle their max call load. When we had the good old fashioned 1960s, 70s rotary dial phones nailed to the wall. Even a big call or a big emergency, maybe got two or three calls for the people who live nearby or were directly affected. Uh, now, as I said, even a small accident that's relatively visible to other motorists uh, will, will, you know, will generate 10 20 uh, years ago, our industry thought was that Friday and Saturday are going to be your, your busy call times because everybody's out and having a good time. And we, we still have rises in our calls for service during those periods. But surprisingly, in looking at the statistics, I found out that the afternoon drive times surpassed our Friday and Saturday night call volumes only from the fact that everybody was in the rush to get home. Everybody was running into everybody else who was trying to get home. And then everybody was calling about accidents they were in or accidents they saw. Uh, and the problem for 911 is that these calls were not evenly spaced. The call metric has always been how many calls per hour did you take? And that's really not relevant anymore since proliferation of cell phones. It's how many calls came in in the last three minutes. And when you are getting dozens and dozens of calls about the same incident, you know, I'm talking about minor incidents. Can you imagine what it does during a major incident where a lot of people see it at once? Uh, and you've got other people calling from other areas with other real emergencies. And, you know, you see the reader board light up that you've got 2911 calls waiting. Um, it's Things get missed. I'll be honest with you. Things get missed. People are in a hurry. People are, are trying to see if indeed, and you've got to answer everything because you've got to see if the person is calling about an accident on the interstate is calling about the accident on the interstate that's already been reported. Because a lot of times it's a secondary 
accident caused by the backup or a tertiary accident by rubbernecking on the, on the, on the other way. Uh, I was reading some statistics about uh, just call answering uh, and there was a major city where during a one month period, about a quarter of their calls uh, callers were put on hold for about two minutes. And, and that's, that's pretty sobering. That's pretty sobering. But again, it has to do with the fact that the technology as we see it now delivers more calls than we have people to answer, period. I mean, I don't much care where you are. That is the norm rather than the exception. Yeah. And that certainly is something to consider. You know, if you're thinking, you know, how many people are calling for this accident that's already been reported? And I thought, well, let's let's find an automated system that says, are you calling about an accident right here on the interstate? Click one for yes. We've already got that report. However, that already doesn't work in my head because it could be just past or just before that same accident. And there's no way to like differentiate that extremely easily unless you can like drop a pin on top of someone on a map yeah. uh yeah and that's and some people are, are 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 trying that uh to some some degree um but there are those issues uh now we are moving into the potential for technology now where we can really geo-identify the location of the callers prior prior to answer because the one thing that uh, I, I I kind of mentioned but but skipped over is that you've got you know these twenty calls waiting to be answered uh, and you see eighteen of them are coming from the same half mile area and two are coming from other places in town, uh, you know, it, it will give us the ability then to target those two other calls because if you have, I mean, it's just like the emergency room, luck of the draw. If you go in with a, uh, a, a broken toe and there's nobody in there, you're going right in. Uh, but if you happen to be the poor sucker who has a heart attack when there's been this big accident on the interstate that a hundred people call in about, you know, you're going to wait. And the other phenomenon that we see are people who actually call 911 after help is on the scene. Uh, and it's kind of hard to determine what that is, but the, the, the best that a lot of us guesstimate is that some people almost having a guilty conscience for having something that uh, they saw and didn't call in and drive maybe five miles down the road. And like, ah, gee, maybe I better dial that in. Well, by, by the time they dial in, it, it, it's already reported. I did see, talking about over-reporting, I did see two cars get involved in a very, very, very minor fender bender in the parking lot of a, of, of a local big box store. And in fact, I couldn't even see any damage on either car. And it's certainly well below the statutory limit for requiring a report. Both of the drivers immediately jumped out of the car and dialed 911. 
And I, I don't know whether they thought it was sort of like a radio contest where, hey, you know, you're the you're the ninth caller, we'll give you a toaster. Or they had a concept of, hey, wait a minute, if I call first, then I, then I win if the report gets a, I don't, But I, I just sat there almost amazed that, and watched them and listened to them both within, you know, when the cars hit each other, they're obviously close to each other, but they're both standing outside the car next to each other, calling nine one one at the same time. And you know, we have conditioned. We've we've done a great job conditioning people to call nine one one when there's a problem. We have not done such a great job explaining to them how to do it, <laughs> when to do it, and you know what constitutes an, an, an emergency because, you know, there's that and there are, you know, and I will say as, as terrible as some of the calls are that we've discussed here, the majority of calls that come through 911 are not emergencies. I'm not saying that they don't require perhaps some police intervention or, or public safety intervention at some point, but most most of the calls you get are not life-threatening emergencies, and they are more along the fender benders, or my neighbor parked his car uh, a quarter of an inch across my driveway, uh, the dogs got in my garbage, uh, but that type of thing. And unfortunately, all of that adds to the over-reporting of real emergencies that, that clogs up the system. And yet, Sitting here, I, I still can't say to people, oh, don't call, uh, because every situation is so unique. And we've had people call, and, and we're very apologetic about calling. Uh, you know, I, I can remember getting so many calls on Thanksgiving from people who were so apologetic uh, and asking us, could we send like a small fire truck with, with no lights and siren? Because they were embarrassed that they set their kitchen on fire trying to cook Thanksgiving meal. And it's like, I think we'll just, we'll let them use the siren. It'll be, it'll be okay. You know? So yeah, there's, there's that other side of it that there are people who have tremendous emergencies and are just apologetic and, and thinking, gee, can I do something other than call? But you know, hey, you, you, you still, I'm sorry, you, you still got to call if it is, if it is a valid emergency. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's okay to be embarrassed about lighting your kitchen on fire, but your kitchen's on fire. So let's save the embarrassment for later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's good. I had two other questions I wanted to ask about and they're not, they're not in the direct vein. So I don't have a good segue for them. Uh, <laughs> one was how does a life alert button work? Okay. Uh, the life alert. <laughs> And I'll take that. I'll take that name out of discussion. But medical alarm pendants or, or something of that 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 ilk uh, typically work by uh, sending an alarm or a distress signal to a monitoring station. That monitoring station being the, the company that sells that medical device itself. Uh, that company will then, depending upon their protocol perhaps call you back to see if you've fallen and can't get up uh, or if there's another problem going on and then they will pass that 
that information on to the 911 center. Uh, typically, these devices are not directly monitored by 911, but rather by the company who has sold the device. It's kind of a our dispatch will call your dispatch. Yeah, yeah. Although in the, in the case of um, some alarms, and I'm not dealing with those uh, folks now, there is a fairly recent development that's called um, ASAP, uh, which is a processing of automatic alarms, which allows alarm companies to directly input active alarm information into the computer system at 911. So it comes up as a new call rather than having to have my dispatcher call your dispatcher, they will, would enter it just as if a call taker at the 911 center took the information. So that's been a great help because the geo information, the address is pre-validated with 911, which eliminates a great deal of time that's, that's lost on many 911 calls involving alarm companies where they don't have sufficient address information to process it quickly. So that's sort of a, a way to keep my dispatcher from calling your dispatcher. It's working out well in the communities where it's, it's being used. Oh, that's good to hear. Cause I was wondering like, you know, if you're wearing a button around your neck, like what's the, the possibilities you accidentally press it throughout the day and does it just immediately dispatch people? So it's, it's good no. to hear. No. <laughs> The other thing I was wondering about is, you know, as we become more populated and people start to spread out and our, you know, our population just gets broader in a sense, are services staying the same where it's, you know, one big firehouse at one location, or are they starting to kind of, you know, just spread people out across an area? Most and we'll uh, we'll kind of look at every 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 service here. Uh, for fire and law enforcement, you do see construction of new facilities, and in, in fact, uh, some of the fire standards uh, specify uh, driving distance, response times, etc. So, in order to stay current with codes, fire departments are building uh, additional stations and police being more of a mobile type of uh, response resource will sometimes you know, build more precinct houses, etc. as, as uh, the population spreads. Uh, there are in some of our less populous and, and, and bigger states, uh, the deputies or, or the troopers may uh, you know, take vehicles home and basically work out of their their houses even so much more than any fixed location. Emergency medical services in many areas actually move their ambulances around based upon predicted responses. You take a look at your medical call history for the time of day, day of week, year, and there's a prediction as to where you see your calls occurring. And even though there may be ambulance stations, uh, many uh, EMS responders will actually, without a call, pick up their rig, leave the station, 
and drive to a parking lot or some other facility in the center of this area where the where the prediction shows that they'll get a call. And this may be outside of what you would consider to be a, uh, you know, the normal, you know, their normal response zone. The other thing that you see in EMS is, and the same thing in fire, uh, I guess in all the agencies, is what I would call the closest unit concept that there are many situations of which I'm aware where if uh, with the use of automatic vehicle location technology, uh, which, which again is one of the benefits that has come with technology and that we can now tell where our resources are by looking at a map. Uh, if you are an ambulance who is returning from the hospital after dropping off a patient and you are traveling through a zone which is not normally your jurisdiction, well, we have an emergency in that zone. We see that you're in that zone. We don't care what it says on the side of the ambulance. We will send you. Uh, the, the same thing with law enforcement and, and, and fire, that there are mutual assistance uh, agreements drawn up that uh, basically say, okay, you know, this is in your zone, but, you know, our our fire station or our, we've got a car that's closer. So yeah, we're, we're going to send you, but we're also going to send somebody who we know is closer. So they're going to get a full response and they're going to get the best response because again, we don't care. Neither does the citizen care what it says on the sides of that emergency vehicle. We're going to send the closest unit. Yeah, absolutely. And it's all about, you know, who can get there fastest and help most, you know, do the most good. Uh, and by that measure, you know, people on scene who are maybe making that call can be the first people to interact with that, much like, you know, doing CPR over the phone, like we've talked about. And I was hoping you could speak a little to the Good Samaritan laws and kind of, you know, a lot of people are hesitant, I think, to get involved because they, they want to think like, oh, well, I don't want to be legally responsible for this or I am not medically trained, something like that. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to both aspects of that. Uh, first of all, again, like my, you know, one nation, one number of 5,000 ways, uh, Good Samaritan laws differ from state to state. So anybody who's got a true concern, I would encourage them to, you know, Google their own state and, and, and do a little digging. In, in terms of I am not trained, the person on the other end of the phone at 911 is trained. And they are providing you with instructions that have been vetted nationwide in hundreds, if not thousands of communities and reviewed not only by the creator, but by local medical authorities who have their finger, no pun intended, on the pulse of that community. So the information that you're getting is good. I will also say that we never, ever force someone to do or to follow our instructions on, uh, on, on medical calls. That is you know, strictly your, uh, your call, your conscious, your call. There was a very visible call several years ago about uh, someone at an assisted living facility refused to follow the instructions being provided by the uh, dispatcher on a, on a cardiac arrest. So again, we don't force you, but we are giving you the best information that's out there. Secondarily, a lot of what we are doing with you on the phone 
is gaining information. So a lot of what we're talking to you about doesn't require you to do anything except give us answers such as, you know, are they conscious? Are they, are they alert? You know, how old are they? You know, have they had this problem before? Things of that nature does not require any hands-on. Oh, I've got to do this. I've got to do that. And I think finally, if you take a look at the success rate from CPR that has elevated itself since the entire team of 911 and, and EMS and the advanced life support has gotten together, it's pretty, pretty good. Given that most of the CPR that is used currently is what's known as bystander CPR, which does not involve the mouth-to-mouth component. So with everyone being concerned about COVID or other communicable diseases, basically, in most cases, what you'll be asked to do is to do chest compressions and the dispatcher will count them along with you or, or set a rhythm. So if you just stick to what you're told uh, and, you know, don't do any freelancing, uh, the amount of exposure that you have to liability is very, very, very small. Yeah. And that's, I think it's very important for people to hear that, like, you can make a difference. And if you're not comfortable with it, you know, by all means, don't get involved. But if you are comfortable with it, you know, they they know what they're doing and they're going to give you very good, you know, instruction as to how to help. And I think this has all been really great and I appreciate your time immensely. Uh, if people are looking for you or more information, where can they find you? They can find me online at Barry Fury, my name, B-A-R-R-Y-F-U-R-E-Y.com. Or you can, if you want to know more about managing 911 center, uh, just to, Again, search my name on Amazon.com and uh, you will find my book, uh, Managing 911, 365 Days a Year. Well, Barry, thank you very much. I appreciate your time on the show and I hope you have a great day. You too, sir. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Just Dumb Enough podcast. Remember to go rate and review us. iTunes and Spotify are the big ones. They're also really easy. So please, please do that for me. Also remember to share the show with friends or family or strangers or spray paint it on the side of a building. I don't know if I can legally tell you to do that, so don't do not do that, but do, you know, keep it in mind, I guess. I just wrapped up my second interview with Matthew Stapley today, so expect that next week. He's become quite the fan favorite on this channel, and I always enjoy talking with him. I'm leaving two days from now to head down to Atlanta, Georgia for the extended weekend. It'll be from the 10th to the 15th. I've already got some plans to meet up with some listeners. If you want to get together while I'm there, send me an email at dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or just message the show on any of the social media pages. Alright, big update for the leaderboard this time around since our last episode went out on the last day of February. The final numbers for February are number one, United States, with Oregon and California leading the chart. Number two, in an unexpected and unlikely exact tie, Canada and the United Kingdom. 
you both somehow tied in listens and listeners. Number three, Estonia. Number four, Brazil. And number five, in the second tie in a single month, Ireland and Japan. Now compare those to our March numbers so far. Number one, still the U.S., but with much less of a lead. And the top states this time being Washington and Indiana. Number two, beating both countries who usually sit up here, India. Making this their first time on the list, I believe. Number three, the United Kingdom, which actually overtook Canada, making them number four. And finally, number five, Germany, back up in the top after a few weeks off the leaderboard. All this to say, thank you for listening to the show, wherever you're listening to it from, and sharing it with whoever you are sharing it with. It really means so much to me that I can't even express properly how happy it makes me when I see, you know, these numbers spike up and see new countries pop up on the list and I see these big changes in listenership. It's just really, it's something that I can't explain and it really gives me so much every time I get to look at it and I want to thank everyone out there listening for that. But that's all the time I'm going to take up from you this week. I'll see you in the next one. Bye bye.